LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Jim Holt, who joins us to discuss his book, Why Does the World Exist? Why is there a world rather than nothing at all remains the most curious and enduring of all metaphysical mysteries. Moving beyond the narrower paths of Christopher Hitchens, Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking, Holt enters the fascinating debate with a broad, lively and deeply informed narrative that traces all our efforts to grasp the origins of the universe. With sly humour and a highly original personal approach, Holt takes on the role of cosmological detective, suggesting that we have been too narrow in limiting our suspects to God and the Big Bang. He tracks down, among others, an eccentric Oxford philosopher, a Nobel laureate physicist, a French Buddhist monk, and author John Updike just before he died, to pursue this cosmic puzzle from every angle. As he pieces together a solution, while offering useful insights into time, consciousness and eternity, he sheds fascinating new light on the meaning of existence. Hello and welcome Jim Holt and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Very glad to be here. Now Jim, today we're going to talk about your book, uh, Why Does the World Exist? Which basically is the three big questions that we like to ask here, basically why are we here, where do we come from, where are we going, all rolled into one. And uh, before we dive into it, perhaps tell us how you came to this question, because in, in the first part of the book, entitled Confronting the Mystery, you talk a little bit um, about uh, your life and how you, you, your journey brought you to this question. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in uh, the state of Virginia and uh, in a very religious household, and I was taught by nuns, and I was tutored by uh, Franciscan monks, and they taught me about uh, Thomas Aquinas, and uh, they taught me basically the same thing that all Americans uh, grow up uh, being told, that the, uh, the world exists because God created it out of nothing. And, and if you ask why God exists, well, God is in the business of existing. Existence is part of his essence. He's perfect. He's self-creating, or something along those lines. So anyway, that's a story that I imbibed as a youngster, and when I reached uh, adolescence and got a little rebellious uh, intellectually and in other ways, uh, I started having doubts about this. And um, I, uh, I was uh, sort of uh, pretentious and precocious as, as a teenager, and I went to uh, the local university library and checked out some books by people like Jean-Paul Sartre and, and Martin Heidegger uh, on existentialism. And, uh, and when I was reading Heidegger's uh, book, uh, An Introduction to Metaphysics, the very first words of that are, are, why is there something rather than nothing? And when the question uh, was put before me in such a stark, poetic form, uh, it really galvanized me. And uh, I, I, you know, I've been interested in it all my life. And, um, you know, I, I went on to uh, study mathematics and physics and 
but I was always interested in philosophy and I was interested in, in religion. I read Kierkegaard in college, as most people do, and so forth. So yeah, the question that's always haunted me was always sort of playing about in the suburbs of my mind. Um, and then I, um, you know, I, I eventually thought this is a this is a, a, a you know an awfully good idea for a book because not only does it touch on every you know what I consider it to be every intellectually thrilling uh, subject like uh, the nature of space and time and eternity and causation and laws of nature and God and proofs for the existence of God and and string theory and you know the whole everything but. Um, uh, you know, no one has ever done it before. I mean, so the you know it was wide open. I could go out there, and make a fool of myself, and I could meet a lot of great thinkers and talk to them and and get them to think out loud and see what the results were. So then that's how I started writing the book. And then as it happens, while I was writing it, the question "Why is there something rather than nothing?" very unexpectedly became a, a kind of a hot button issue in uh, in American uh, politics and culture. But perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. Maybe you'd like to interject a question here. Well, no, simply just to reflect on the fact that this is an eternal question. It's 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 always been, as far as we can tell, with with humans, and it's always there in our lives, everywhere we go, every area of life or culture, society. We may not be obvious, but it is there, and it it sort of haunts us. And yet, so many people don't feel moved to to ask it at all. You know, the the philosopher Schopenhauer said that the uh, the lower the man a man is in intellect, the less mystified he is by existence and so you know the idea is that if you if you've never thought about this you might be uh, intellectually deficient i wouldn't go that far but uh uh i mean i think you know as i as i point out in the book one of the this existential this cosmological question why does the universe exist why does the world exist sort of rhymes with a more personal question why do i exist you know it, it, the, the world easily could have gotten along without me it's you know sheer luck that my parents Arrange their uh, uh, sexual congress in a precise way so that so that the little uh, the sperm that was carrying one half of my genetic identity managed to swim its way daughterly to the egg and you know create the unique genetic identity that that has become me. So yeah, I mean it's 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 mysterious on on many levels. But just getting back to the um, uh, the point I raised earlier about uh, the issue suddenly uh, bursting forth on uh, you know talk radio and uh, cable TV in the United States. This this happened with the you know the so-called what we call here the God Wars, which uh, began when um, uh, some neo-atheist uh, thinkers like um, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and others wrote uh, anti-religion books that that all became bestsellers. And um, when uh, Christopher uh, Hitchens, who's probably known to your audience, um, I hope so at least, mm -hmm. uh, he's now uh, dead, but um, when he would appear on. Um, on uh, cable TV uh, talk shows, uh, arguing with right-wing uh, defenders of religion, they would say, "Well, look, Christopher, you know, you can if you don't accept there's a God, how can you explain why there's a universe at all? You know, it defies logic that all of this came out of nothing." And the neo-atheists, you know, once the, once you dispense with the God hypothesis for explaining existence, you're not really left with a lot. And so they didn't have a good response. And remember, one one. Uh, 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 defender of religious uh, orthodoxy uh, and right-wing uh, pundit uh, saying to Hitchens, you know, what happened before the Big Bang? And Christopher said, I'd love to know what happened before the Big Bang. So, so it, it, it surprisingly became a, uh, you know, a, a question, you know, seemingly the most abstract and most pure, the most fundamental of all questions, but it, it was suddenly fraught with, uh, you know, with, with cultural significance while I was writing the book. So I knew that there were physicists who were... Uh, 
trying to answer the question of why the world exists, why there's something rather than nothing, by purely scientific means. And I thought, hmm, okay, so in addition to the God hypothesis, there's the possibility that you know the laws of quantum field theory will explain how a universe burst into existence out of nothingness. And that's interesting. But maybe there, there are other possibilities out there. Maybe you know, we've been too narrow in limiting the, uh, the ontological suspects to uh, you know, God versus uh, the, the, the laws of physics. And, um, and then I was, I was watching um, uh, TV. This was about 10 years ago. Uh, I was watching a show, and Martin Amos was, uh, was the guest. And uh, the, the host of the show, who knew Amos was very interested in these cosmological questions, uh, two, uh, said, you know, uh, Martin, why do you think, um, where do you think the universe came from? And Amy said, well, I, I'd say we're about five Einsteins away from answering that question. And I thought, hmm, five Einsteins, you know, it sounds about right. So maybe I can go out and, and find some of those Einsteins. Maybe they're around and sort of, you know, arrange them in the right order and see if I can make some progress in exploring this issue. So that was what I set out to do in the book. Well, I think that a lot of people don't ask this ultimate question, uh, because they're afraid that it might reveal, um, even if they don't have an answer, but they can form sort of pseudo answers in their own mind. If, if it revealed that the, the universe and creation and the, the earth had no purpose, that would be quite traumatic. I think that's why a lot of people have religion. and They maybe don't deeply feel it and believe it, but it gives them some comfort that this all, all of this has a point. But equally, the other side of it is that if it was revealed to us through science or other you know means that there was a purpose to creation and existence, that would be traumatic for perhaps some hardline materialists. They might be forced to ask themselves some questions and ponder meaning if there was purpose to this after all. Yeah, I mean, I well, you know, the, the conclusion I came to at the end of the book uh, is the conclusion that you know m- most people, I believe, in the secular age have come to is that, the, that there is no cosmic purpose and. So how do I react to that emotionally? I find it quite liberating. I mean, supposing that the that the reality, the form that we should, the most general form that we should ta- expect reality to, to take is that of a an, an infinite, mediocre, incomplete mess, a kind of cosmic junk shot, and uh, and so you know bits of it, it it's a mixture of uh, of mathematical elegance and inelegance. It's a mixture of good and evil. It's a mixture of uh, of beauty and ugliness. Um, it's infinitely uh, far removed from nothingness, but it falls infinitely short of realizing every possibility. Um, and uh, and it's you know parts of it. It, it looks you know it, at times it looks as though it has a sort of purpose built into it, but then at times it looks as though it has a rather uh, the contradictory uh, purpose built into it, and then at times it looks absolutely absurd. But I, so I think the conclusion is that you know it, it, this is liberating. I mean, suppose we were living in the the world that uh, Leibniz philosophizing as a Christian thought we were living it's the best of all possible worlds and that's why God picked it out from all of the other logical possibilities when he was creating uh, uh, the, the world so that would be I mean I think I, I would find that very onerous because it would mean so what's my why was I brought into existence in this world well if it's the best of all possible worlds and that's its purpose then my role is to make it as good as possible and who wants to be charged with that assignment I mean that's a lot of <laughs> it's a pretty terrible obligation so I think that the purpose the, the apparent uh, purposelessness of existence is you know we, we should take that as uh, as a sort of liberating epiphany, because it means that we don't have this cosmic purpose imposed on us. We're free to uh, invent our own purposes, 
uh, I think one of the most profound uh, things in all of literature is in the uh, novel, the Russian novel, Oblomov, where um, the uh, title character is told the purpose of life is to live. And uh, there's a certain uh, sort of uh, beauty to that, I think. And um, and it was interesting that one of the people that uh, in the book that I talk about is uh, Woody Allen, um, the American filmmaker and, and uh, former stand-up comic. And he, of course, takes a very dim view of the universe in existence. He he thinks it's a brutal, uh, meaningless place of suffering. We we all go to our our graves in a you know meaningless way and so forth. But you know there are little. It has little pockets of. Uh, of beauty and charm, and um, you know, I, I sort of think that's enough. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to have a cosmic purpose imposed on me, and I, I like to think that at the conclusion of this long quest, I have reaffirmed the secular belief that there is no purpose. Oh well, everyone might as well just go and get coffee now, then, really, because that's, <laughs> that's the yeah, end of well, that. yeah, which is nice, or, or 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 pour yourself a glass of whiskey, or uh, or write or or, or write a uh, write a sonnet or a sestina or uh, you know, look for the uh, uh, mathematically complete form of uh, string theory. Um, it's all good. You know, if evil is your thing, go out and do some evil. No, I shouldn't say that. Uh. <laughs> and yet we do seem to have this tendency towards, uh, well, this may be a matter of belief for some people, but I seem to see in the world a tendency towards goodness, towards empathy. I mean, what would explain that? There are reasons for believing that there's an arc of moral progress in the universe when you get you know for instance you know, the, the the observable universe came into existence about 13.7 billion years ago in the big bang uh and then you know uh all that time elapsed and eventually you get these self-replicating chemicals and then you get uh you know proto uh life forms, bacteria, and so forth, and eventually you get interesting life forms, and you get you know, life forms that have consciousness and have higher cognitive powers like us. And so, you know, at first, the, you know, this Darwinian struggle uh, by which life and more complicated uh, forms of life uh, emerge is a, is a brutal one. It's nasty. It involves, uh, you know, nature is red in tooth and claws, someone put it. But, uh, but, but eventually, um, the, you have to have a strategy for dealing with these other, you know, self-replicating, complicated beings. And the best strategy is, you know, it, 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 is it, it, in game theory, it's called tit for tat. You know, basically, you 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 cooperate with other people, with other beings, until they give you a reason not to cooperate. I mean, the basic idea is, you know, if if you won't hit me, I won't hit you. And so th- that's that's the first sort of glimmering of of of, of a kind of goodness. In, in the universe, and then the other glimmering is that you, you know, um, if I look at my, my you know, a, a child of mine, that child um, is, you know, is just a bag of uh, self-replicating chemicals like me, but half of the DNA, half of that child's genes are the same as my genes, and the other half is the child's mother, and so if I see my child drowning. I have this sort of evolutionary built-in motive to save the child, not because, you know, the, the, the psychological reason is, is, is love, but I also happen to share half my genes with it. So, so this is a, this is a uh, sort of a, a way that a kind of, you know, concern for others in a very primitive can emerge, you know, from, from, from brute matter. And so, you know, as the universe develops more and more uh, complicated uh, forms of organization and uh, and, and consciousness and self-replication, you, you do see a sort of arc of goodness. And you know, we're at a very early stage of the universe, and it could be at the, you know, the so-called o- omega point, very late into the universe. 
this this arc of uh, of goodness and world progress culminates in you know along with sort of great cognitive power and a sort of almost a sort of godlike entity i mean this is the you know this is the speculation of some physicists and some religious thinkers like the french uh, the french jesuit uh, Teilhard de jardin and so forth and i think it's a little bit you know it's a, it's slightly woolly but um, but fun to entertain at times. So um, yeah, I think you know, the, the, in a sense, there's reason for optimism. But it's a bootstrapping sort of thing. It's not a a cosmic goodness that's imposed from above, as it were. It's something that sort of gets going as we climb out of the muck and start organizing societies and start using our intelligence for good purposes and so forth. And so yeah, that's kind of heartening in a cosmic way. Well, one thing the book makes clear is you're talking to people of a religious bent and talking to scientists and people who somewhat straddle both camps that they historically have offered us, you know, their versions of the truth. Science is obviously the, the one that's more in vogue or has been certainly, you know, since, um, you know, Newton's day, as it were, materialistic, reductionistic um, science. But they're starting to sort of overlap and converge in a way that people have argued they actually did thousands of years ago. And it's clear that both avenues of exploration and, and attempts to gain knowledge are offering us pieces of a puzzle. And it's clear in the book that we're, we're not going to get to the bottom of this if we ever do with pure science. One of the things that uh, science is not good at explaining is uh, the place of, 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 of mind and consciousness in the universe, the, uh, the phenomenon of subjectivity. I mean, you can, um, a scientist can know everything there is to know, for instance, about how... Um, uh, how the brain works and how the uh, 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 all about optical theory and the nature of photons and wavelengths of light and so forth. But if that scientist is blind, she won't know what it's like to see something, to see red, to see red, to see a, a red rose. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 there's sort of ineffably uh, subjective aspects of our experience: the way uh, pepper, a peppermint tastes, the way it feels to get pinched, the way the, you know, the way uh, it feels to lose a loved one. And uh, the, the, since these are all sort of qualitative uh, phenomena, uh, science, you know, which is a quantitative structural enterprise, can't explain them. You, 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 you can't capture subjectivity in quantum field theory. So there's a big part of the world that, uh, of, of reality that, that science uh, leaves out, and deliberately, because science, you know, being quantitative, it can't capture qualitative things like you know, the, the, the subjective feel of things. And, but for us, that's all important. If there was nothing, you know, if there were nothing but elementary particles sort of bumping around and coming into various formations, there would be no value in the world. So if you think of, you know, think of Adolf Hitler, he's just a bunch of elementary particles and the think of Auschwitz I mean it's just it can all be described by physics but if you describe that by physics it's just a big swarm of elementary particles bumping around and coming into different formations you leave out the you know, one of the fundamental aspects of reality is the you know the evil of it and the suffering of it so uh, I mean and I'm hardly the only one to point out that you know science gives us a very incomplete picture of existence and we don't really and the the, the more scientific progress we, we make the more the very nature of the material world uh, becomes elusive. You know, in the 19th century, the material world was thought of as, you know, sort of made up of little, you know, billiard ball-like things, you know, good solid entities that sort of bumped around and influenced each other by pushing and pulling. And now in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we know that's a ridiculously naive uh, vision of the physical world. It's actually, you know, far more ghostly. It's... um, uh, it's the, 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 if you look at matter on the smallest levels, the atom and the subatomic level, 
any kind of materiality, any sort of you know determinant particles are dissolved into uh, you know in, into pure mathematics, into the into the, uh, a, a play of uh, of mathematical fields. And so, what is the you know it, it, this has been called the dematerialization of nature, and it actually you know began as far back as Isaac Newton, when when Newton talked about gravity as a as a force, um, you know that one uh, that the sun exerts upon the earth. But it, it sort of moves through intervening space without any, you know, any material uh, mechanism. It's, it doesn't actually, you know, sort of reach out and pull the Earth towards it. It exerts this sort of ghostly influence, and Newton couldn't explain the nature of that. And it just got worse and worse in the 20th century when we discovered how weird the quantum world was. That it was more like, more like a thought than 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 a you know billiard balls. And so, um, the, we, you know, the, all of this is to say that our grasp of uh, of what being is, of what reality is, even the part of reality that science deals with is 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 very uh, is very incomplete now. I mean, we, for me to ask the question, why does the world exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is um, uh, there's an arrogant naivete to that because we don't even know what the world is in any interesting sense. I mean, if you ask a quantum physicist. You know what does reality consist of? Well, he'd say it's a it's this it's this object called the universe, which I'll abbreviate U. And uh, you can't talk about it consisting of individual objects and properties. It's just this one big holistic thing, and its state uh, is described by a a vector that's rotating in an infinite dimensional Hilbert space. And so, for the quantum physicists, there are no such things as you know tables and chairs and and rocks and people and so forth. It's just this single entity that's described by a very sort of complicated law of motion. Um, and you know, what, you know, how naive is that going to look 500 years from now? And we'll have a much more sophisticated understanding of reality. So yeah, we don't understand how mind fits in. We don't understand the nature of mathematical entities, which mathematicians believe are sort of timeless and eternal and perfect, like uh, like Plato's ideas. Is that are they part of the physical world? And we don't even understand have a really good understanding of the physical world and its essential nature itself. So um, you know, all possibilities are, are are open for explaining this. You put forward the very interesting idea in the book that uh, a hacker might have been behind uh, the, the creation of, of the universe and our reality. Uh, that uh, and there does seem to be evidence when we look around that there was a. Well, you could certainly posit that there was an ultimate creative force somewhere, and there seems to be evidence for intelligence at work and design and purpose. It does appear to be everywhere if we look. But uh, you also point out that well, that yes, but the hacker doesn't necessarily have to be godlike in the sense that he doesn't have to be particularly good or particularly intelligent or even have a a real overriding reason for doing any of this. If if you think about could there you know could the universe our universe have been created by something like an intelligence that had purposes yes as you point out it need not be a godlike entity it could be a being that falls far short of uh, being all powerful and all knowing and all and, and perfectly benevolent and so forth it, but but it's going to be a being you know that that is powerful enough and intelligent enough to to create something that looks like our universe and I was talking to uh, a great uh, Russian physicist who now teaches at Stanford in California, Andrei Linda. And uh, he's the um, author of the theory of, of chaotic inflation, which is probably the best uh, uh, theory we have now of, um, of uh, what was going on before the Big Bang. And it explains a lot of um, uh, empirical findings that, uh, uh, that have been made in the last um, 15 years with the um, various satellites observing the, 
the shape of the background radiation left over from the Big Bang. Anyway, so Andre Linda, this great, very great physicist, he said he points out that to create a universe because of this inflationary mechanism at the beginning of our universe, you don't really need a whole lot of resources. You just need about you know one one millionth of a gram of matter, and and so a sufficiently advanced civilization could create a universe, a, you know, a physicist hacker could, one, could create a universe like ours in a lab, and it would begin expanding into another set of uh, spatial and temporal dimensions and so forth. But, and I said to Linda, well, well would, would this, if, this, if our universe had been created that, that way by a, a hacker physicist in another universe, how would we, how could we come to know our, you know, imperfect creator? And he said, well, that's a very interesting question, because, because if the creator tried to write a message across the sky, you know, please remember that I made you, with, with the inflationary scenario at the beginning of the universe by which all the particles and energy are created, that message would be blown up to be so large that we would never be able to read it. We, we would be living in a sort of a tiny little corner of one of the letters. So the only way the hacker physicist could affect our universe and could get a message to us would be by um, encoding the message in the fundamental constants in the laws of nature. And so the, this physicist, Andre Linda, who was somewhat ironically presenting the scenario, said, you know, and that could be the explanation for why our own, our own universe is kind of screwed up. I mean, the, the laws of nature that we're discovering, at first we hoped it would be very beautiful and very elegant, but they're not that elegant. They're kind of messy, and they're full of all kinds of arbitrary uh, numbers that don't seem to have any further explanation. And our only hope is that maybe these numbers are sort of a coded message from the from this imperfect intelligence who created us. And I think that, you know, this is a fun scenario to think about. I don't really take it seriously. But I do say in the book that if you look around at the universe, at the world we live in, you know, one hypothesis, the religious hypothesis, is that it's created by a godlike entity who is 100% good and 100% powerful. But the way it actually works, my theory is that it was created by a, a being that's 100% malevolent, but only 80% efficient. And that would pretty much explain everything. Just a, a quick note on the idea of laws of physics or nature or the universe. There's also the idea around that laws don't cause events, they don't determine them, but rather they're, they sum up what's happened. They're kind of a measure of what's going on. Rupert Sheldrick, the biologist, presents this idea that instead of these natural laws or universal laws, that they're actually more like habits and tendencies that build up over time. And indeed, he's pointed out that um, certain universal constants, such as the speed of light and gravity, actually fluctuate. This is something that I know about rather than know. I, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of... Uh, I, I haven't seen any hard uh, empirical evidence that the constants like the law of, uh, that like the speed of light, do fluctuate. I mean, I know that there's some um, there's some speculative thought along those lines. But yeah, your point about you know, the, the the very idea of a law of nature, the, the the fact that we call them laws of nature suggests that these are sort of rulings that must be obeyed. And then the the old idea is that that God ordained the laws of nature, and that you know that the planets follow the, the trajectories they do because they're obeying the law of gravitation. But in fact, um, that's, a, you know, that's sort of a pre-modern understanding of law that we still haven't shaken off because we haven't found a better understanding of the laws of nature. Philosophers of science uh, argue endlessly about this, uh, and they'll tell you that we don't really know what a law of nature is, and we don't understand cause and effect. You know, uh, uh, David Hume in the, uh, in the 18th century uh, showed that our 
intuitive notion of cause and effect uh, isn't really valid. There's no, you know, we see kind of necessity out there in the world, but the necessity that we see is projected onto the world by our minds. And so the whole idea that you can explain, some uh, physicists have reported uh, recently, have purported to explain how a universe could leap into existence out of nothingness. They start with, you know, they define nothing as a, as a uh, closed uh, space-time uh, geometry of zero radius, and then they do some uh, calculations in quantum field theory, making a few assumptions, and they say, oh, lo and behold, a little patch of uh, false vacuum can pop out of that nothingness with a finite probability, and then, through, and then it can inflate into a whole universe. And then, and then you say, but why should, why should a patch of false vacuum uh, tunnel into existence out of nothingness. And they say, well, that's what the laws of quantum field theory ordain. And say, yeah, but where, where are those laws? I mean, are, are they sort of, you know, written, are they, you know, you can say the mind of God, but then you've got a, a God back in the picture again. Uh, and, and how do those laws inform nothingness that it's pregnant with the universe? You know, this, this is all, you know, this, this is, these are scientists talking about how a universe could have arisen from nothing at all, but their account is, you know, it sounds like a, a, a primitive creation myth of an Amazon tribe. Uh, I, I didn't mean to be disrespectful to Amazon tribes in saying that, but, you know, it's not a very philosophically satisfying explanation. Well, I wouldn't worry about offending people that my website hits from the Amazon are showing is very, very low. Okay. But, <laughs> but the question of, uh, in your book, the section which came closest to giving me a brain hemorrhage was actually the one entitled a brief history of nothing, where you're trying to ponder the, the, the nature of nothing, what, what that could be. You may listen to what I'm saying, how nothing could be something. And also the question that you've just been addressing of getting something from nothing in terms of creation. And when I was a, a kid and I used to ponder nothing, I always, my, the image that came in my mind was an empty vessel. But then there's, mm -hmm. a, there's still a vessel. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, this the very argument that you came up with as a kid, or the very sort of thought experiment. You try to imagine nothing, and you you empty out the vessel, but there's still the vessel, and that seems to be something. That very argument was the the subject of a a book length monograph by an Oxford philosopher who died about uh, four or five years ago, named Bede Rundle. It's B E D E Rundle. He wrote a book. Uh, with the title, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. And his argument was that nothing was impossible. If you try to imagine nothing, you, you, you sort of empty out the, you know, the, the, the universe, but you're still left with a kind of vessel or a stage or a, you know, an arena. It's just empty, but it's still something. And I, I think this is a, you know, it's a terrible argument. If we can't imagine something, we can't, we, from, from our failure to uh, imagine something, we can't conclude that that something is impossible. I mean, there are lots of things, you know, the, the um, general relativity tells us that we live in a, um, a four-dimensional space-time that uh, has curvature, and we can't, this is something, we, we can't imagine curved four-dimensional space-time, but uh, it, it would be foolish to deny that it exists uh, based on our failure to imagine it. So yeah, it, it may be impossible to imagine. Another experiment was um, uh, the French uh, uh, philosopher in the early 20th century, Henri Bergson, who said, if I try to imagine nothing, you know, I can empty out my consciousness, but I'm still left with my with myself, my own consciousness. I'm still the observer, observing nothing. And, and you know, this is another bad argument. Uh, uh, the German poet uh, Goethe found it impossible to imagine his own non-existence. And so he thought, oh, that must mean that I'm immortal. 
you know, and, and I, I know that sounds foolish, but Goethe actually concluded that. It's the worst argument for your own immortality possible. But it's funny that, you know, nothingness is so hard to imagine. But on the other hand, people feel that nothingness is the most sort of simple and natural form that reality could take. So they're surprised that there's something rather than nothing. So it's, you know, it's a paradox that nothing seems sort of unreachable, reachable, unimaginable, and, and maybe even impossible on the one hand. But on the other hand, people think that it's so, you know, it's so simple and, 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 and natural that, that it should have prevailed over something. That, you know, it's surprising there's a world rather than nothing at all. So um, make it that which will. But, but once you start playing games with, with nothingness, you can, you, can, you can have a whole lot of very innocent intellectual fun. And I do a certain amount of that in the book. Uh, I think Lewis Carroll did it somewhat better in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> well, there's you know, no shame to come second there. <laughs> um, if we take the idea then that there's always been something, then you sort of ask, well, could anything always have been? And then, because the question always keeps coming up, okay, well, what's behind that? What's before that? And it's the idea of the eternal regress that keeps coming up in your book. And, you know, the question of, okay, infinity, how does infinity begin I mean, if it, do you know what I mean? It's always this idea because of the world we live in that things start and they stop and they come and they go. They're not always there. And if the world is, is actually eternal, you put the question, well, does the mystery then of existence lessen or does it even go away? Yeah, um, it, it, there's, it's funny that it's very easy for us to imagine time going on forever into the future, but hard to imagine that time extends infinitely far into the past. And, you know, so for instance, supposing, uh, take the number, take the number pi in, in mathematics, the, uh, 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 the, the number pi, as we know, has an infinite number of, uh, of digits. So you could start, and, and they never repeat, and they, and they never terminate. So I could start res reciting the digits of pi right now, 3.14159265358979, etc. And if I, if I were mortal, I could, I could, recite them for you know it, all eternity into the future now uh, the philosopher wittgenstein um in, in one of his uh lectures he imagined um walking down the road and coming across a, a man sitting by the road and the man is saying uh nine five one four one three finished and and wittgenstein says Finished, finished what? What were you doing? He said, well, I've been reciting the digits of pi backwards from uh, infinitely far to the past, and I just got to the end. I mean, <laughs> you think about, I, I don't know if this is probably too, too difficult to be conveyed in this kind of interview, but if you think about that, that's, it's, it's really kind of puzzling. Um, yeah, so, and, 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 you know, we can, each of us can imagine, you know, perhaps our own immortality. We can imagine going on forever. We don't think we will. We think we're all destined for the grave. But you can imagine sort of, you know, never dying. But yet there was this sort of long period uh, before you existed. And then suddenly, you know, you, you, you wake up to consciousness after this, you know, uh, um, long period where you didn't exist. It, it's sort of impossible to imagine going infinitely far back in the past. But anyway, so you know, maybe the universe itself is eternal, unlike us, uh, and maybe you can always explain the state of the universe at any given moment by the state it was in uh, at the previous moment. Um, and in a sense, you would have a complete explanation for the universe, but the explanation would be internal to the universe. You couldn't explain why it's that series of states of the universe rather than some completely different series. So another way of thinking of this is, suppose you have a book, you know, like the Bhagavad Gita, 
and um, and you said, why does this book exist? And you said, well, actually, a scribe copied it from an earlier copy of the book. Well, why did that copy exist? Well, another scribe copied that from still earlier, and and on back into the infinite past. So you would have an explanation for each copy of the Bhagavad Gita. But why the Bhagavad Gita to begin with? Why not, you know, why not uh, Das Kapital by Marx? You know, so so even if you could, even if the world were eternal, there would still be a mystery as to why it took that form rather than any of the infinitely uh, many other logically possible forms. Yes, and you touch upon, the, again, in the book, the question of um, how deep you can go with any explanation. And then it gets very interesting because you, you sort of ask the question of, about the nature of what an explanation in itself actually is. Yeah, well, I mean, the, one idea is that explanation goes on forever, and that this, the children are very good at uh, exploiting this because you know they, they say, Daddy, why is the sky blue? And you can say, well, because uh, the uh, oxygen molecules uh, scatter uh, uh, photons in that region of the spectrum. And said, well, you know, why do oxygen molecules do that? And, you know, why, 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 why? The child can go on forever and, uh, and, 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 and never terminate the series of why questions. That's why, by the way, it was once said, if you take the question, why is there something rather than nothing, the most fundamental of all questions, it would only occur to a child or, or a metaphysician. I'm not sure that's true, but but anyway, so yeah, so there's this idea that explanation can never come to an end uh, because um, uh, you know if if you had what what seemed to be the final explanation, you can always ask, well, why does it take that form and not some other form? Now, in the book, I I actually think uh, uh, decide towards the end, and this, by the way, this is not me thinking. I'm just a journalist. I'm I'm just a, a conduit for the ideas of serious thinkers. And so one of the thinkers I encountered very late in the book is the great um, Oxford philosopher Derek Parfit, and uh, he I found to be the most enlightening thinker on the question on this you know on these sorts of ultimate questions. And using uh, his way of thinking about the mystery of existence, I concluded that you know eventually you you do run out of logical possibilities for explanation if you push the attempt to explain all of existence uh, hard enough. You, you, you do come to a sort of a logical point where there is something like a unique explanation. So, I mean, I think this is a controversial bit in the book, and it's, you know, it's, it's the only slight glimmer of actual originality in the book, the only bit that's due to me. Everything else is, you know, my presentation of, of great, you know, the thought of great theologians and great uh, cosmologists and physicists and great uh, philosophers and even a great novelist, uh, John Updike, who, who, who pondered these mysteries. And, and also the form, you know, does explanation always have to be, the, you know, scientific type explanation uh, based on laws and cause and effect? What about more uh, general forms of explanation like uh, Aristotle's idea that we can explain things teleologically, we, we can explain things by an end that they might be striving towards? I mean, this sounds like primitive thinking, but in fact, teleological thinking is back in fashion in, in physics to some extent. Um, and it may be that, you know, 500 years from now, People will look back and say, oh, those poor people in the 21st century, they were using this almost medieval scheme of explanation where they only relied on, on cause and effect. And we know, you know that's, that's such a limited way of thinking. So, yeah, I think we should always you know, realize that our explanatory resources you know, are, are, are actually very primitive and, and, and try to find sort of richer ways of, uh, of explaining you know, things you know, which are necessary when you're trying to explain all of existence. There's also an area that interests me greatly um, that you get into, um, which is quite an in vogue idea, certainly has been 
for the last probably 10, 15 years, particularly since pop culture events like the Matrix uh, films. And that's the idea of the universe as um, a field of information. And that then brings in the, the idea that a lot of people like the idea of uh, uh, universe as computer simulation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a real threat, actually, because, I mean, if you suppose that um, there are other intelligent civilizations out there that for one reason or another we have not made contact with, um, some of them will be technologically far more advanced than ours. And um, uh, they will have discovered um, the Turing machine and the computer, and they'll be doing, uh, and then and then, you know, vastly more powerful computers and quantum computers and whatever comes after quantum computers, they'll be doing this, you know, amazing virtuoso information processing. And so as soon as you, you know, get your hands on a computer, that one of the, the most, you know, uh, fun things to do is to do a little simulation, you know, create your own little artificial world according to very simple rules. You might, you know, you could sim- simulate a uh, traffic patterns uh, or you can simulate a weather system or you can sim- simulate a human mind you know, as a set of, you know, input-output relations, but, you know, uh, stimuli come in and then there are behavioral outputs and you sort of process the information from one to the other. And if you did a really complicated simulation, you might, you might come up with a, you know, a, a one that was good enough, you know, a little computer that could, if I had a terrible, uh, you know, if I were in a terrible auto accident, my brain was uh, screwed up, um, you could put in some, um, some silicon bits, some bits of a computer, and they would do the same things that my, you know, bits of my brain were doing. So maybe you could simulate even consciousness. And so then this creates, you know, the possibility, could a very advanced civilization come up with a very complicated computer simulation that would simulate something like the world we live in with very complicated information processors like ourselves who are conscious and so forth. And if that happened, would the beings inside, you know, would, would there actually be consciousness within the simulation? Um, and would the, you know, and could the beings inside the simulation ever be aware that they were part of the simulation? But then you think, if there are lots of, you know, civilizations doing this, there, there are probably many more simulations than there are actual physical realizations of intelligent societies. So it's much more likely that we're a simulation rather than, you know, something that arose from directly from brute matter. I've never seen the Matrix, but I gather that this, you know, there's something, it's something along the lines of that. And then if you think about, you know, going back to what is material reality, and, I, you know, basically physics describes uh, fields, uh, that reality is a play of fields, which are basically, you know, uh, mathematical, they're information states. And so it may be that there's no more to reality than just a play of information. So reality would be, by this way of thinking, it would be like a computer simulation, but there's no actual hardware. There's only software. There's the program running, but it's not running. It's not running on anything. And so, uh, a, a, an Australian philosopher, a friend of mine named David Chalmers, who takes this, you know, rather seriously, um, said that it, it, it actually can explain both mind and matter. That 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 um, physics is information from the outside, as it were, and mind is information from the inside. So you think of the whole all of being which consists of mind and matter it's all made up of this neutral stuff called information and um you know th- that again is i consider that uh wildly speculative but it's it's a really interesting sort of speculation and um it's it's sort of pleasurable to contemplate radical scenarios like that yes well there's speculation that has a sort of a if not a ring of truth about it then at least something that you feel that is worth exploring as opposed to things which don't really speak in that way you know they just seems to be sort of uh, logical dead ends 
alongside the idea of well, the God hypothesis of a, a good, uh, loving God with a, a purpose for us all and creation in general, um, I really like the idea that you introduce basically God creating the universe um, because he's suffering from a sort of form of spiritual fatigue or he's basically <laughs> bored. And this ties in um, nicely with an idea that I read about uh, a few years ago and it, it really it was very profound it really moved me just the, the concept of it and it was the idea that all there is is a singular consciousness which is in the best case scenario is playing hide and seek with itself in all these objects we see in creation and reality it's like a game it's a playground and the worst case scenario is that this singular consciousness has been is suffering from such terrible loneliness because it's all there ever has been or ever will be, that again, it's hiding from itself in all this multiplicity of forms. Yeah, that's that's actually a uh, a more profound idea than anything that's in my book. Um, very good. Uh, yeah, I mean the idea that uh, you know even even if this sort of divine infinite mind can um, you know conjure into existence an entire world, in a sense the world lives inside the mind. I mean this is sort of an idea that goes back to uh, Spinoza, right? Um, but 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 basically the the entities in the world they're 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 phantoms. I mean it's it's like if I were um, uh, uh, psychotic and I had a you know sort of a, sort of a delusional world full of phantoms. I mean it, that's not really a good world to live in because those things aren't real. Um, by the way, the idea of uh, this whole idea of, of God creating the world out of sort of spir- spiritual ennui was um, presented to me by John Updike, the you know, great American novelist who died a few years ago, died actually about a year after I interviewed him. And it was only after I had talked to all of the physicists and the theologians and the philosophers and so forth that I, I thought to speak to Updike. And he gave, you know, it was a um, um, sort of a, a lovely literary fill-up to the whole debate. And, um, the you know, he conjured up uh, 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 an image of God, you know, sort of alone. I mean, he, he thought of the, you know, what we, the, the universe, our universe, uh, many cosmic eons into the future, when when all of the all of the particles have spread out so far, so they they can't interact with, with each other, is, and entropy or disorder is at a maximum, and all of the black holes have burned out, and uh, you know, it's it's the closest maybe we can imagine to nothingness. And now imagine God, you know, surrounded by this ontological wasteland and, 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 uh, and, and, and just out of sheer boredom, conjuring a new and organized and beautiful world into existence, you know, almost, as Updike said, like a bit of light verse uh, as a sort of divine amusement. And I just thought it was, you know, a very, very pretty image, and it made me feel rather good about existence. I mean, you know, we're not living in the morally best of all possible worlds, but it's like a, you know, a really good bit of light verse. Don't take it too seriously, but it's still sort of amusing and uh, and charming. And by the way, I think there's an interesting question. If you believe in God, and I take, I mean, I do take, I try to, to be, even though I myself am an atheist, I, I took the religious point of view very seriously and uh, respectfully in the book. But if you do believe in God, and, and the, the, the best defender of the God hypothesis that I talked talk to was the Oxford um, theologian Richard Swinburne, who's absolutely brilliant and knows as much about physics as he does about theology, which is a lot. And, I, and he 
he refused to say that God's existence was necessary. You know, that's the old argument you get from medieval philosophers, that God exists by his very definition. This is built into the, you know, St. Anselm's um, ontological argument for the existence of God. But he didn't believe that, and he thinks all of those arguments to to the conclusion that God exists by logic alone are fallacious. So I said, well, that would mean, uh, Professor Swinburne, that God himself is a sort of, you know, if God exists, as you think he does, is a sort of brute uh, fact, and has, there's no further exist, uh, uh, reason for his existence. He says, yes, that's true. And it occurred to me that, you know, it's possible that even the eternal God could be puzzled by his existence. I mean, an eternal God could imagine the possibility of nothingness, and he might think, you know, why is there me rather than nothing? And uh, you know, I love the idea of God being puzzled by his own existence. I hope that doesn't sound irreverent. But um, and then maybe and maybe bringing bringing a, 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 a finite temporal world into existence to distract himself from his own puzzlement at his own existence. Yes, well, I don't think it's being you know irreverent because if if God is um, how uh, <clears throat> most uh, religions tell us he is, then he wouldn't he wouldn't mind that at all. He'd understand that we're, why we're asking these questions. I've never. I don't believe in God per se, but I also don't feel that I actually know enough to, to be a committed atheist just yet. Um, I don't think the results are in. If you're astonished and awed by existence itself, a, a, you know, a good example of the Wittgenstein, the, um, uh, who I think was the greatest uh, philosopher of the 20th century, had a very profound uh, spiritual element to his temperament. And he was, you know, he, he was greatly astonished by the, the, the miracle of existence. He said, you know, the, 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 the mystical is not how the world is, it's that the world exists at all. And, and, you know, how astonishing that there should be anything rather than nothing. And, you know, it may be that this is the, the you know, the deepest impulse uh, behind religion, behind the, the you know, uh, behind uh, a spiritual uh, inclination, and there's some people who just don't have it. I mean, one of the earliest people I spoke to was um, in in writing the book was um, in investigating this mystery was um, Adolf Grunbaum, who's a very great German-American philosopher at University of Pittsburgh, and he was utterly uh, unastonished by existence. You know, he didn't see anything. He was unastonished by consciousness. You know, he didn't see anything surprising about it. You know, what could be more natural than that things exist? Um, and I said, well, what about Wittgenstein? He said, oh, Wittgenstein was a, uh, you know, uh, uh, was a practically a psychotic thinker. He had no respect at all for Wittgenstein. Um, and uh, he thought that the only reason we find existence astonishing is, is because we were, you know, as children, we were taught that God created the world out of nothing. And then, you know, once you, so you have God plus nothing equals the world. And if you stop believing in God, you have something plus nothing, you know, blank plus nothing equals the world. And you, you know, think, that's astonishing. We have, you know, how can we even fill in that blank? But Grunbaum says, oh, you've just, you know, you're just a prisoner of, uh, of old uh, Judeo-Christian ways of thinking. Uh, give it up. But, you know, to me and to, you know, to me in, in many moods, existence is deeply puzzling and miraculous. And my presence as part of it is even more miraculous, and um, so some people maybe it's you know we'll discover that you know some people have a have a gene for being astonished by existence and others don't. I don't know. Well, I think whether you're astonished by existence or not, I think that when you look at what exists, it's amazing. And I think whether you if you believe that uh, God created it in seven days or some version of that, that's an amazing hypothesis. But I think what's even more amazing is the idea that it would arise from 
uh, a primordial soup in some mud for no purpose, no reason, and completely by accident. I mean, I'm not saying that that would that, that makes it incredible in terms of not believable, but that in itself would be an amazing uh, occurrence, an amazing chain of events if it happened like that. You can trace a series of uh, accidents way back to you know to the Big Bang, and then you know earlier you can think of a mechanism uh, that generated lots of Big Bangs and you know, and this whole cosmic ensemble consisting of maybe infinitely many universes that have been growing, um, you know, all the way back into eternity, or, or and maybe the whole thing sprang out of, you know, something very, very close to nothing, and it didn't have to, according to quantum field theory, all you get are probabilities, and even, you know, the probability could be quite low, and yet the thing happens anyway, so there's no explanation for it. Um, but then... You know, finally, you after that, you know, something seems to, I mean, something didn't come into existence by accident because it's the whole framework in which these accidents are occurring. And, and, and you know, is the, the fact that there is this sort of framework, it's sort of like the vessel you thought of as a child when you, when you, you know, erase all of the atoms and stars and galaxies yes. and animals and you're left with a vessel. If you, in science, if you, you know, look at all of the accidents, I mean, the, 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 the quantum fluctuation, the Big Bang, the, the first uh, self-replicating molecule um, arising in the primordial soup and so forth, Yet all of this is happening within a framework of you know what look like laws, and laws have some sort of necessity we say in a very primitive way. So yeah, it's a weird mixture of chance and necessity, which is to say, you know, we're seeing it all through a glass darkly. We're seeing it. We're like you know we're like those apes in uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey, sort of you know howling and gibbering around the uh, <laughs> around the obelisk you know, or whatever it was. <laughs> Well, ultimately, of course, it comes to the the another question, which is whether we should uh, not try and solve this ultimate question, but rather just dissolve it. And one of your interviewees uh, specifically says that he considers this question of uh, why there's something rather than nothing and why the world exists is basically beyond the limits of human intelligence as it stands. People people say the same thing about consciousness, right? And uh... Uh, you know, uh, Colin again, an English philosopher in America, has said, you know, that there there is a solution to consciousness, but uh, there's no reason our our brains, which which um, evolved uh, according to uh, Darwinian processes for very other purposes, to the survival and propagation of our genes, there's no reason I think our brains are capable of grasping it. Um, yeah, so the question, asking the question, why is there a world at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? It may sound foolish because, um, you know. If there is a solution to this, if there is an answer, our fine, our pathetic, finite little brains will never be able to uh, wrap themselves around it. And it may be a wild goose chase. There may be no answer. The, the whole the question might be, you know, nonsense. It might harbor a contradiction. But um, you know, one philosopher I talked to compared this to the um, the uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers in uh, the sixth century B.C. Um, in Asia Minor, uh, like Heraclitus and uh, Parmenides and so forth, uh, asking the question, um, what is the world made of? And Anaxagoras and so forth, what is the world made of? Is it made of water? Is it made of air and fire? And, you know, and that, you might think that's a very naive question, what is the world made of? Well, you know, why you know, even think of looking for one kind of substance that everything is made of? But, but in fact, that question, which might seem very naive, it's been one of the most fruitful questions 
in all of science. You know, and and um, it's led to a tremendous amount of intellectual progress. And um, you know, this question too, it's you know, it, it might look primitive and naive and childlike, but you know, ask it and try to push it as far as possible. And when you realize that you're trying to answer it in terms of things like you know, cause and effect and natural law and God. And then you're pressed to make sense of those things, and you realize, you know, I don't even understand what cause and effect is. I don't understand what space and time are. I don't understand what a, a, a law of nature really is or what this necessity is. Um, you know, you, you might have to uh, tear down a lot of the, the old intellectual structure that is built up, which was sort of creaky and rotten and deserves to be torn down. Um, and build something, um, you know, more solid and interesting in its place and uh, and have a great deal of uh, fun in the process. I mean, to me, this is just, you know, sheer, it's, you know, it's it's just intellectual, um, I'm sorry to say cheesecake, but that's sort of a disgusting image. But it's just, you know, it's it's pure pleasure and it's cheap. You know, everyone, you don't have to be a genius to think about these things. And in fact, a lot of the geniuses I talk to almost, you know, sounded almost as uh, as naive and silly at times as uh, I sound when I'm, you know, up at 3 a.m. wondering about why the world exists. So, you know, there's a, there's a sort of democracy here. You know, everyone's ideas are, um, some claim to be, you know, valid, to be, be valid or at least to be taken seriously. And um, so, yeah, let's just uh, indulge our uh, intellectual and metaphysical curiosity and have some fun in the process. And also, um, there's no reason to think that we should have all the answers now. I mean, you can look at it and say, well, human beings have been considering these big questions since forever, and we're still not that far forward. Um, we're never going to get there. But as I say, you know, we just don't know that. And we just seem to be living at a time of sort of particular existential angst right now. But, you know, we don't have to have all the answers today or even tomorrow. Um, but I, I felt that by the, end of, by the end of my quest, I certainly didn't have an answer. But 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 I could see something sort of taking shape. It's like you know making out the form of something. If you're wandering around in a very thick fog and you can sort of you know you're in a cathedral, you can sort of make out the form of the cathedral, but you can't really tell whether you're seeing something or or you know you're just imagining that you are. But so by the end of the book, you know based on the um, the the, the uh, amazing speculations of the people I talked to, and and I was able to see. A very general form of an explanation be, begin to take shape, and 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 by the way, this explanation has specific implications for reality. I mean, one of them is that reality should be should be infinite, and that seems like a you know it might almost seem like a tautology. Well, of course, reality should be infinite, but actually, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it was thought that reality was was quite finite. It consisted of the um, the Milky Way uh, galaxy, um, sort of sitting all, all alone by itself, and uh, and there were these little smudgy things that you, astronomers could see through their telescopes, and they were thought to be like clouds in the galaxy. We called you know they were called nebulae, and then with with better telescopes, uh, it turned out lo and behold that these nebulae were were other galaxies, and then you know. All of these galaxies contained 100 billion, on the order of 100 billion stars, like our sun. And then, you know, there were 100 billion of these galaxies. And then this is just the observable universe. It's, it's bigger than that. And then there's the, the multiverse, which may be infinite and so forth. So, so now, it, you know, it looks as though the universe is infinite. And, you know, in one implication of the conclusion that, that I come to, that reality is an infinite, mediocre, incomplete mess, is that it, it is infinite, but it falls infinitely short of complete fullness. So it sort of 
somewhere in the spectrum between nothingness and the fullest possible reality. And so that's, you know, that actually does give you something like an empirical implication. And if reality turned to be finite, well, then, you know, which is always possible, then, then this explanation would be wrong. Um, so, yeah, you, just because you can't, you don't have all of the T's crossed and I's dotted in your explanation doesn't mean you don't have anything of intellectual worth. No, and I think that brings the discussion full circle quite nicely, actually. That would be a good point uh, on which to end. Um, Jim, I know your book's widely available. I don't know if you've got a website or if there's anything you'd like to share with listeners before we close off for today. No, I'm afraid I have no website. I, I've, I've, uh, I'm, I'm terribly embarrassed when people promote their books, and I, I've always vowed not to do that myself. So uh, I will say that the book, if you, um, the book is reviewed in the current issue of the London Review of Books, um, which uh, even though it came out uh, over, uh, it came out almost a year ago in the uh, in the UK, but um, uh, so there's a review in London Review of Books, which I think is behind a paywall, so you have to be a subscriber to read it. I, I hope it's a good review. I only read half of it when, when you called up and we began the interview. So, uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, you can still find the book on, you know, Amazon UK and all of that. But I probably, after listening to me gas on about it for an hour, uh, I think anybody hearing this would probably be thoroughly deterred from buying the book. So, uh, <laughs> Well, they shouldn't be. The book, once again, is called Why Does the World Exist? And it's, it really is it's quite a romp, to be honest. It's not scientific, uh, overly scientific or sterile at all. I'd thoroughly recommend it to listeners, even if you don't want to, I will. Okay, well, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Jim Holt, for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. I had a great time. Well, that's it for another week. As always, I very much hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, I'd urge you to check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com, Legalize-Freedom.com, and there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.